Hello and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. And I'm Joy. On today's episode, we talked with author Tessa Afshar. Her new book is The Land of Silence. And Tessa was voted the new author of the year by Family Fiction Reader's Choice Awards in 2011. Really ever since, she has been a woman of notoriety in the Christian fiction world. And we had the pleasure of talking with her about her book, about her background as an author, and even her thoughts on some biblical concepts. Right. She writes mostly biblical fiction. So it was interesting to get to hear about her writing process, how she decides what stories she wants to focus on, and how she uh, came to be an author. So we hope you enjoy this episode, and feel free to check out the book at her website, tessaafshar.com, or find it at tyndale.com. Just to start things off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be a writer? I was born in Iran before the Islamic Revolution, and I grew up in a family who were nominal Muslim, which meant that we believed in God, but my parents didn't practice the tenets of Islam. When I was 13, my parents were divorced, and we ended up living in England, uh, my mother, my sister, and I, where I went to a boarding school for girls. And the boarding school was not faith-based, but we were asked to go to church every Sunday because that was uh, English tradition. And so on Sundays, I would traipse over to church. But because I was from a different background, I was told that I could sit in the back uh, balcony and read our own holy book. And um, I couldn't do that because the Quran is written in Arabic and I only spoke Persian. So... I didn't want to argue with anybody about that or explain that any translations of the Quran were not actually considered efficacious for religious purposes. You could read it as history, but it wasn't really counted for faith. And uh, so I, I just decided that I would read. So I would used to sneak in romance novels into the church, and that's what I would read on Sundays during church. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't hear much about Jesus, but... Uh, during that time, besides romance novels, I was also introduced to uh, Charlotte Bronte and Jane Austen and other British writers and sort of just fell in love. I always was an avid reader even as a kid, and I started uh, falling in love with the British writers. And even at that early age, wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. But because I had started reading these romance novels, I thought I wanted to a romance novelist. That's really what my plan was when I grew up. And God had a completely different plan. He he sort of blocked that whole thing. And um, when I was much older and a Christian, then the doors opened for me to write as a Christian writer. So my books are biblically based and historical. There's always romance in there one way or another. So I haven't quite lost my romantic roots, but um, that's not the real uh, meat of my books, if you would. Um, It's sort of secondary to the nature of just the struggle everyone has in life to try and connect to who you truly are and how you're meant to live. And for me, that's all wrapped up in God, of course. 
because you can't find who you are without him. You can't find your true self without him. And so, you know, the struggles that all of us have, and I think biblical characters show this the best, because they are broken, and uh, th there isn't a single perfect biblical character. Some come close to it, but the majority of them are like the rest of us. They're broken, they're liars, cheats, murderers, and yet how the Lord turns their lives around and touches their hearts in a different way. That's what always fascinates me, and that's what brings me back to them. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that answered my next question, which was going to be, what led you to uh, write biblical-based fiction? But um, when you start with a, a story, do you, do you primarily start with the characters in mind, or do you kind of pick which um, story or part of the Bible you want to focus on? What's your process like when you're you're beginning to decide what you want to write? That's a great question. My process starts with angst and prayer and begging because I don't <laughs> want to get it wrong. <laughs> um, essentially, I'm going to be spending about a year of my life with that character and that time period. Mm -hmm. So it would be absolute misery if I got it wrong. So I, I do spend a lot of time with the story. I do biblical research around it. Sometimes it's a time period, and sometimes it's a character. With my last novel, which is based on the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed from a 12-year uh, disease, it was her story, and it was Jesus' response that, that grabbed me because it was so emotionally powerful. Um, everything about what she had gone through and then Jesus' response, really. And I look for that. I look for that emotional power, emotional tug in my own heart. Because I figure if it tugs on my heart, it's probably going to tug on the reader's heart as well. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't emotionally move me, I'm not interested. I've um, had publishing companies ask me to write the story of a certain character in the Bible because they know readers are interested in that person. But if it doesn't connect with me, I can't do it. So I have to turn that down. Mm -hmm. So Tessa, you did allude to your most recent novel called Land of Silence. Would you mind telling us more about what that story is about and some of the themes that run through it? Land of Silence is the story of the woman with the issue of blood the woman who'd been sick for 12 years, we don't know her name. We don't really know where she was born. We don't know anything about her background. All we know is that she'd been sick for 12 years and had gone to every doctor that she could find, and no one had been able to cure her. And as a result of all these physician visits, she had grown impoverished, which is sort of a modern storyline, really. Uh, I, I know of people who go into debt in today's society because of being sick and um, how expensive it is to get treated these days. So here is this woman who's left with nothing and because of the nature of her disease she is an outcast in her own society because a bleeding woman is essentially a social outcast. She can't be touched because anyone who touches her is unclean. Anyone who touches the cushion that she's touched or sat on is unclean, and they have to go through a whole ritual. So she's essentially an inconvenience to everybody. She's a bother. If you're a woman, you know how much you hate to be a bother to anybody. 
and this is her life. 12 years straight, not only of sickness and feeling unwell, of growing poorer and poorer every day, of never finding an answer, but 12 years of rejection, of being seen less than everybody else. And uh, what was really the turning point for me wanting to this story, to write this story, was the reality that Jesus uses a word with her that he doesn't use with anybody else. He calls her daughter. Mm. And, uh, and this is after she's essentially stolen her healing. In other words, she hasn't asked his permission. She's touched him. She's touched a rabbi, made him unclean without asking him. Uh, she's probably at this point despairing. She doesn't think anybody would give her the time of day. And here's this important man. Hundreds of people are following him. He's never going to want to heal her. So she feels that healing. And Jesus knows. He says, who touched me? I felt power go out of me. I felt healing power flow from me. And then she has to own up. And she comes shaking, falling to her knees. And she says, it was me. And she says, I know. I knew the moment I touched the hem of your garment. At that very moment, I was healed. I knew that. And Jesus calls her not how what a horrible person she was. She, he doesn't call her a thief. He doesn't call her unclean. What he calls her is daughter. Mm-hmm. And this was amazing to me because uh, while he's in, called other people daughters of Abraham, he's never directly called someone his daughter. He's never directly accepted them at that intimate level and I know there are no throwaway words with Jesus and I wanted to know why this woman why did he call her daughter because the whole context of this story is crazy that Jesus would even stop to ask who touched me because right before she touched him a man comes who a very important man he's the leader of a synagogue and he falls at Jesus feet and he says come and heal my daughter she's dying Mm. so it's an emergency situation you know at that moment Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus really say well let's drop everything let's run as fast as we can to Jairus's house and take care of this little girl who's dying but instead he stops and he says who touched me and Jairus is there think of the irony Jairus is there asking for his little girl. And this woman has no father. Asking for her. Asking for his little girl. This woman. And the reality is she has nobody. Everywhere else when you look uh, in the Gospels, you'll find in these uh, stories of healing, the friends and the families are the ones who bring the sick people and say, Jesus, please heal them. And this woman has to come utterly alone. And... Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. This woman has been sick for 12 years. Uh, she's been bleeding for 12 years. This little child has lived for 12 years. There's a lot of complexity, irony in this story. And it's as if at that moment Jesus looks, there, looks at her and says, not only do I want to heal you from this disease, which is physical, but I want to heal you from the reality that you have no father. I want to heal your fatherlessness. And I think in our society, this too is very modern. 
father wounds are so prevalent in our society. So many of us suffer from father wounds in the sense that our fathers weren't there when we grew up, or they're gone through divorce, they're gone through overwork, or they're gone because emotionally they're not able to be present for us. And so our hearts are wounded by our fathers, by their absence, by the words they never spoke to us. And Jesus looks at this woman and he says, I see your father but no more. You're my daughter now. I'm your father. And I thought of that story and the power of it for all of us, because if Jesus said daughter to her, how many more of us can hear those words from him? That claim, that absolute healing, powerful moment where he said, I saw that your father never called you mine, he never claimed you. Now you're mine. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to write that story. Mm-hmm. Tessa, that's beautiful. And it's amazing to me how biblical stories and then your expression of them through fiction uh, really touches on some deep the deep spiritual needs of our society, of our world. I mean, you talk about fatherlessness, and you pull out so many other themes that could easily, this story is so known, it's talked about a lot, and it's easy to dismiss thinking that we know the intricacies, but those that you just mentioned about the 12 years and the daughter and Jesus stopping along the way are really profound, and that's what makes this story, I think, resonate with people. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, it's beautiful. One of the things you write um, is that despair is an invitation to prayer, and we can either sink or pray um, when it when it comes to us. So what are your thoughts? What did you mean by that? And maybe something in the story that brought that up particularly? I think uh, the, I think this story is ripe for despair. I, when I was trying to imagine her life after 12 years, I was pretty sure she must have struggled with despair. And quite frankly, most of us do at some point in our lives. There comes a point where we we just hit a wall of hopelessness, of I can't do this. God, I truly cannot do this. I can't go on. Mm-hmm. And uh, even St. Paul, that powerful man who who worship God after snake bites and after being beaten over and over again, after his shipping stunk and after being um, betrayed by friends and, you know, having such a hard life. He says, uh, and he always sort of bounces back, and yet he, he says uh, in, in the letter to the Corinthians, he said, uh, for we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired, even of life. Even St. Paul came to a place in his life where he despaired. And I think despair is the reality in all our lives, and it will sit at our doors, it will knock at our doors. And we have really two options at that point. Either we open the door of our hearts and we say, come in, sit, be my guest, take over. Or that's the moment where we cling to God. Lord, I'm gonna talk you, talk to you, and ask you to see me through this. And it's not that at that 
very moment you stop feeling despair. It's just that as you pray, other doors open. You, as you struggle through despair with God by your side, and God is always by your side, it's just that you're not necessarily turning to see that and to perceive that. The more you perceive his presence, the more the power of despair uh, dissipates mm-hmm. and the more God's power overshadows the hope of mm-hmm. And there are elements in that of perseverance. You know, perseverance produces character and character hope. And it's not without persistence that we overcome the despair because, goodness, that is a tireless enemy, it seems. It is a tireless enemy. I think uh, one of the things that I had to learn in my life as a Christian was persistence and perseverance. I think it's uh, Satan has so many ways of coming at us and just making us tired. We live busy lives. And then wherever you, all of us have certain places of fragility in our character. There are parts of our character that are more fragile than other parts. Uh, Some of us are fragile to physical illness. Some of us are fragile to financial illness, to relational issues. And whatever your fragility is, the Lord knows it, but so does your enemy. He knows exactly where you're bruised. And whereas God will not break a a bruised reed, the enemy wants to do exactly that. And he'll come to you in in those places. And I had to learn perseverance because at the beginning, when the opposition would come, I I would just sort of want to give up and say, oh, this this is overwhelming. I'm overwhelmed now, Lord. And uh, and through the years, and, and the only way to overcome that kind of hardship is to face it and go through it. You can't learn to be a persevering individual. You can't learn to have grit and to persist unless you keep falling on your face. And it's in the getting up again, in the act of getting up again with the help of Christ and saying, I believe you more than my circumstances. I believe you more than my feelings. And I'm just going to get up again and again and again. You do not learn to persevere. You do not learn to contend with hardship unless you go through hardship. So it's a tough lesson. (laughs) It is a tough lesson, but one worth learning. Um, In in the Land of Silence, uh, one of your characters speaks of Jesus and says, Compassion becomes a weapon of warfare in Jesus' hands. No heartache can stand against it. That's that's powerful words. can you talk about how that idea ties into the to the story? The the concept of the story is that toward the end, of course, she uh, sees Jesus and she starts observing him. Uh, you know, you know, in that storyline where he where she comes and sort of steals her healing. She must have heard about him or seen him beforehand. Something in her heart has already percolated faith. So uh, in the storyline, she is observing Jesus. And what what I find in scripture, there's a, there's a verse where we're told that we are to use weapons of righteousness. Mm-hmm. And this, this has always amazed me. They, they don't name what they are, but we know what they are. Weapons of righteousness 
are precisely that, are the compassion of Jesus or prayer, forgiveness. These are the weapons of righteousness. The weapons of the world are resentment, anger, getting even, uh, harsh words, criticism, and and actual weapons where, where violence. We see so much violence in our world, and those are actual weapons that people pick up, but only because these other weapons have happened in their hearts already, the, the rage and the unforgiveness. So uh, I, I, I was thinking, you know, Israel was waiting for a man who had the weapons of the world. I mean, he was a righteous man of God, but he was going to be like David and he was going to have weapons. He's going to uh, whoop the Romans and throw them out of Israel and they're going to have this whole new regime. Jesus came without a sword except the sword of the Spirit. And his weapon was compassion, prayer, forgiveness, hope. And and so in his hands, just our hopeless heart, a broken soul, sickness, the blindness of the spirit, all of this compassion of God. So I, I really was fascinated in, in our world where, where violence is becoming such a raging issue uh, at, at the opposite spirit of Jesus and that this uh, I wanted to show a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish more leaders in the world would use compassion as a weapon We'd have a much better world <laughs> sure would I, I absolutely agree with you I don't know that we know how to do it I mean think about that I, I find in my own life uh, if a friend betrays me, compassion is not the first place I go to. Mm -hmm. Resentment is. I'm honest. And, um, and it takes a lot of prayer and struggle to get to a place, I don't know if it's even of compassion, but at least forgiveness. You know, it takes a long time for me to have that kind of compassion, whereas Jesus seems to just land in it. So <laughs> it's nice to have him in our corner. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And fiction has the power of allowing you to enter someone else's story and then connect it with yours. And so I'm actually in the beginning of the book. I love it. Um, and I found that it's pulling out so many of my emotions. So I know one of the things you commented on um, in a Q&A on our site is that you know, you don't set out necessarily to make people laugh or cry, but it's really to tell a story that they can resonate with. But it's true. I, I, I pick up books every once in a while, and I cry, and I'm, I, I'm resentful about that, those tears, because I can sense that the writer wrote that scene specifically to make me cry, and I don't like it. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't write like that, I hope. I try to be true to the character and what they're going through. And sometimes it's really funny and sometimes, because if you can't laugh in this world, I mean, your goose is cooked. You have to be able to have some sense of humor uh, as you go through hardship. And, and I think, so, you know, so, sometimes they're in those least expected moments when you're going through a difficult time where humor comes. I, I don't know if you've ever been to a memorial service where everybody's crying and then suddenly everybody starts laughing because we remember the funny things as we grieve. Mm -hmm. And I think life is, is like that. So there are times as you tell someone's story, 
uh, it makes you cry. I sometimes I cry as I'm writing a scene because I, I just, you know, I, I think, oh, you know, I, I feel like this person is a real person to me by then. And then as they suffer, I, I just weep for them. That there's a genuineness to these characters and they connect with them. I, I hear from readers sometimes they, they say, you know, I feel like Eliana is my friend or I feel like Sarah is, is, is me. You know, they see themselves in the characters. They see their own stories. And there's no greater compliment because one of our biggest challenges as human beings is to be able to put to words our stories. Mm -hmm. And sometimes our stories have no words. Mm -hmm. uh, our longings have no expression. Uh, possibly when we were children, we weren't taught the words. Nobody taught us how to put our emotion into words, how to put our longing into words. Nobody taught that. It's not something in our culture that is common. You, you learn your emotions sort of as you go along. Nobody sits down and teaches you. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to weep. It's all right to feel utterly um, wretched sometimes, you know, and, and why that is. So it's the power of story that gives people a language for their own story. And it's not until you speak those words that you begin to feel comfort. Until then, it's all uh, stuff down there somewhere. You've learned the lesson of uh, you just suck it up and carry on. But at some point, all of that is going to tangle you up, show up as anxiety, depression, show up as just a loss of joy. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much stuck in there. We have a lot of listeners who are aspiring writers, and it sounds like this um, desire to write for you came at a young age, and it took you a while to actually get to the point where you were able to write a book. Um, if anybody looks at your bio, you've done a lot of things in your life. How how are you able to, amid all like the busyness of your life and other things you've done, find the time to actually write a fiction book and and keep going with it? Well, you're an aspiring writer. The first thing I want to say is uh, really don't let rejection uh, stumble you, be a stumbling block in your path because that's what happened to me to some degree. I think God used it, but I, as I mentioned, I wanted to be a romance novelist. So when I was in my 20s, I wrote a couple of romance novels. And uh, even though the publishers were really interested, they said, we don't want to publish these but we love your writing, could you write something else for us? But it was enough for me to hear no, to give up. That's all my soul, my 22-year-old soul could take at that point, or my 25-year-old soul could take. So writing is really, and getting published is a path of no's, and learning to understand that no as, uh, as God interceding and teaching you maturity. You're learning your craft, you're learning maturity in your soul. What I would have written as a 25-year-old is so different from what I'm writing now. And uh, so one aspect of being a writer is what we talked about earlier, which is you just persevere and you recognize the hand of God in the delay. Uh, God wants you to wait for a reason. And in the interim, 
you are gaining things in your soul that you wouldn't have had to give to your readers beforehand. So I wrote as a much older writer. And when I, uh, really when I started writing, I was praying, I was asking God, Lord, I really want to write, please. Uh, and it was on New Year's Eve. And it was one of the uh, one of those times when you really hear from the Lord clearly. It's, for me, it's not often where it's with that clarity, but I felt with absolute clarity that night on New Year's Eve, the Lord saying, you have to make a commitment. So he said, if you don't, it will be too late. And that's what made me sit down and finish that book, which is my first book, Pearl in the Sand. And I cannot tell you how often I would struggle with, um, with thoughts like, nobody's ever wanted read this book or this is boring or who's ever going to publish this or I should just be watching TV because if I were watching TV at least I would be resting because <laughs> I, I kind of didn't have time to watch TV at that point between my work and, and writing so something has to give and uh, you know I wrote I finished the book because I've made a promise to God and that book went on to become published and it, it's still go, doing really well and I, I hear from people around the world because it touches their hearts in a way that my 25 year old book would never have touched a heart because in those interim years I'd learned a thing or two about the heart I'd learned a thing or two about life and that's what God wanted and but you know my my fears were also delaying me so God had to kind of kick me a little bit and say this is the moment or you're going to be too late absolutely that's so well said Tessa and it reminds us and writers that the process needs to involve God it is not all of our own will or our plan and I was just reading in Proverbs 16 I mean how much it literally says we cast the die, but the Lord decides our lots. You know, we plan our steps, but he establishes them. So it really is beautiful to hear you speak of God. And there's beauty in the delay, even though at the time we can only hear rejection. God has the redemption in the story. We just need to persevere like you were speaking about before. And the other thing you have to recognize is when the pain of rejection comes, how are you responding uh, whether it's a rejection in terms of emotionally, whether it's in your childhood, whether it's in relationships, you are going to have, remember the fragility we talked about earlier, you're going to be fragile toward rejection. So when an editor says, no, we don't want this story, it feels like they don't want you. Mm. It feels like they, they've, they've said no to you, to your being, to your mm. identity. But it's not your identity. It's something you created. Your identity is in Christ. And by going through rejection, you are learning that. It's the only way to learn it. Mm -hmm. It's that mm -hmm. Because you run into the arms of Jesus, mm -hmm. and he says, who told you you were your book? It's <laughs> mm -hmm. beautiful, Tessa. Thank you. So if people were to look for Land of Silence, they can obviously go anywhere books are sold. Is there a way we can find you online, either social media or website? TessaAfshar.com and uh, also Tessa Afshar Author on Facebook. I am very active there. Uh, so love to hear from you guys. Great. Hey, that's good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Mm -hmm. I'm sure... Um, everyone will want to run out and 
buy your book after listening to this. <laughs> yes. Yes, Tessa, you're very encouraging. We really appreciate you.